0: So in 1 Samuel chapter 19, starting in verse 1, it says, Saul told his son Jonathan and the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning, go into a party and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I will speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul. His father said to him, the king do wrong to his servant David? He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He, he took his life and the Lord will have won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw and were glad. Why then, would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul so listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole he brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Once, once, war, uh, once war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines, he struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came to Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hands. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. But that night, David made good his escape." Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michal, uh, David's wife, <laughs> warned him, uh, if you don't run for your life to, uh, tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal led David down through a window and fled and escaped. Then Michal took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with them garments and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michal said, he is ill. Then Saul sent the men sent the men back to see David and told them, Bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed, and at the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Michal, Why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escapes? Michal told him, uh, He said to me, Let me get away. Why should I kill you? When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naot and stayed there. Word came to Saul. David is in Naot at Ramah. So he sent me to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Uh, Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent at men a third time, and they also prophesied. And finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Siku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over at Nato, uh, Naoth and uh, Rama, at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth and at Ramah, but the spirit of God came, on, came even on him, and he, and, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments, and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why people say it's sore among the prophets. Wow, I mean, it's quite a lot happening, right? How we have a quick prayer before we unpack some, some brief points about what's happening in this passage? Uh, Heavenly Father, I, I thank so much that we can come into your presence and we can really explore your word and the examples you've given us in, in, in the form of Samuel. In the form of uh, obviously David, uh, Saul, and Jonathan. I pray, Lord, we we uh, look at their character, we can relate, we can find even those, those traits which are not desirable, we can connect it to our lives and we can learn how to live a more godly life. I pray, Lord, we are convicted, we are open to hearing your message. And as I bring forth your word, Lord, I pray you give me the strength and the, and the, uh, the ability to translate it accurately. I pray this all in your precious name, amen. So, this is indeed an intense passage. And this is kind of like a a point of no return. Saul is going after David. He's not having it anymore. And even as Saul claims, makes an oath that he won't do it, he still goes after him. And it's an intense passage. And so I have here two quick points. The first one is, are you a competitor or are you a companion within the church? A competitor like Saul or are you a companion like Jonathan? And the second point I is, do we seek, or do you seek, refuge in Rama? Two quick points, the first one's gonna be a bit longer, uh, cause it is my primary point, it's all about who are we, uh, who, who is our identity in our relationships? Like, how, how do we interact with one another? Uh, but the second point is a lot shorter. So, are we a competitor or companion? So there's two types of relationships here, you have, the relationship between Saul and David, which is obviously not a good one, right? Saul is filled with jealousy, and he's filled with competitiveness and pride. He seeks out ways to get rid of David immediately. He's not a fan of David at all. But then you have a contrasting relationship. And it's interesting that we have the contrasting relationship in Jonathan, who is Saul's son. I mean, that's a lesson in itself. Just because you're related by blood does not mean you have to act like your terrible dad, Right? There's a way out. And Jonathan's relationship with David is defined by love and it's defined by companionship. A complete inverse of Saul. And so, how, so we're just going to unpack Saul's perspective first, his competitiveness, and then we can look at it from Jonathan's side as well. And just to, just to give a little bit of an illustration of, of the dangers of competitiveness. Because especially if you're a man, being competitive... I mean, that, that's, a, that's a trait the world reinforces, right? It's true. But it's across the board, men and women. And I had this story of, uh, I mean, it was yesterday, we went to play golf. And this was like a, a, a date. Uh, so there's three couples, myself and Pam, obviously. And then it was uh, Chantel and Max, and then Sam and Rebecca. And I'm not bad at golf, I thought. But I'm <laughs> Turns out, I'm actually not that great. And I remember before we went over, I had in my mind, oh, I'm gonna look at some, at some, uh, some um, breakdowns on YouTube, look at some golf videos, so that when I go, I can impress my girlfriend with my golf skills. <laughs> right. And I, I, I seriously doubt she was impressed because when I came to it, I was horrendous. I was terrible. There were points there where I would, I mean, anyone who was there could testify. I would, I would tee off and I will swing immediately into a tree. And I, I think my average score for each hole was like probably five, uh, five over par. So it, it wasn't good. And this, is, this was a bit of a shock to me. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm someone who is competitive. When Tim was talking about act, I was there trying to crush each kid with the ball on the team <laughs> that's my That's my nature. But I mean, it's a cool irony that God had me so competitive, but also so bad at golf. And as we progressed through each hole, I was becoming more and more enraged. Not at anyone in particular, but just just at myself. It was was like uh, my eyes had been opened to my lack of ability. Maybe uh, John Computer or uh, or maybe Matty Warwick can give you some lessons sometime, all right? And it was especially interesting because my, my, my girlfriend, who is ever emotionally intelligent, she picked up on my attitude pretty quickly. She saw through it, I was like, nah, I'm fine, I'm cool, yeah, whatever. And she saw through it straight away, and it was so intense. By the end of it, we were almost in a fight on our dates. But that's what competitiveness does for us. It has a way of creating a little bit of friction in relationships. And that's exactly what happens here with Saul. Saul is somebody who views David as someone to be competed against. He sees someone as, oh, you know what? He's a threat to my throne. Now, in the world, competitiveness is actually a good trait. At work, you want a promotion, you've got to compete for it. In your grades at uni, oh my goodness, if you want to pass, if you, don't want, you want a distinction, you've got to compete against it. Right? You've got to compete for it. Competitiveness is a trait which is held up in high esteem within the world. But within God's kingdom it is difference. Within God's kingdom, there is no room to compete, right? The gospel, the gospel message is the ultimate leveling playing field. It, it, just, it just puts everyone in the same place. And when we start competing and fighting, that's when we have issues. And that's what we see here with Saul. And uh, there's, it's just in uh, my, next, my next slide here. And there's this, this passage which reminds me of Saul. And it's here in, uh, in James chapter 3, verse 16. And it says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. And we see each of these traits in Saul within this passage. I mean, think about it. We see jealousy. In the previous chapter, Sam, was, and Sam would have discussed this. Uh, it says in uh, chapter, chapter 18, verse 7, Saul slain his thousands, and David his ten, tens of thousands. So the woman are singing the praises about Saul and David. But Saul, in his jealousy... He doesn't hear the part about how he contributes. Right? He only fixates on David. That's all he sees. We've got to be careful that we are not jealous. We do not operate in the same way. Because ultimately it leads to selfish ambition. And selfish, selfish ambition is this, this idea that we go and we work for ourselves. Saul's kingdom, his reign is given to him by God. But as his reign progresses, he forgets that. He becomes big in his own eyes. And he begins to believe that, you know what, this is my kingdom. I'm going to work in my own interests. When God orders him to go kill the Amalekites, what does he do? He disobeys God and he keeps them for himself. He sees what's good and he takes. And this is how the order of Saul works. It's selfish ambition. And when it comes to the church, we cannot have this, right? Because... We are working as a team. We are given commands. We are given a purpose by God. And that purpose does not involve our benefit. Sometimes it includes, by the grace of God, beneficial things for us. But my goodness, the gold God has given us is far larger than any one of us. And that's something that Saul doesn't quite understand. And then here we have he, uh, this idea of Saul being disorderly. And this is important to remember because disorderly is this idea. In the Greek, it obviously translates to disorderly, but also translates to this idea of an insurrectionist, a rebellion. And we see both in play here with Saul. In verse 9, it says, uh, it's this idea in which an evil spirit sent from God compels Saul to throw a spear. And that's a rabbit hole in itself. We won't discuss it in this sermon. But he is compelled. A spirit comes on him. And again, in verse 23, when he goes to Ramas, the Holy Spirit comes on a saw and compels him to prophesy, stripped down naked. I mean, there's a theme in this passage that Saul is not in control. He's not operating mentally, physically in the right. I mean, it's not only, not only are his actions out of control, but his household is in disorder as well. I mean, look at his children actively working against him. Actively trying to prevent him killing David—that's Saul's household—and this is what competitiveness, competitiveness. That's going to be that's going to be a struggle for me. Right? <laughs> will it do to us? It creates friction relationships. It separates us. We've got to be careful that we do not fall into that trap, right? Because Saul's household is a picture of disorder. And so, what are your relationships? What are your relationships in church based on? Are they competitive? Do you see people doing spiritual things and you think to yourself, oh my goodness, I've got to one-up that person. Do you think to yourself, oh, i I really got to, really got to do enough so that I'm accept, accepted by God. Because you're comparing yourself against your old self. Right? Are we competitive in our relationships? Because we, we, we can't have a posture of sore when it comes to God's people. Because I mean, this, this, when I say God's people, I don't just mean leadership. God's chosen people. I don't, I, don't mean, I don't mean it like that. I'm talking about God's people as in the church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We've got to think, are we viewing each other as a holy nation? Competitiveness is an admirable, admirable trait in the world. Something encouraged, something sought after. But as a holy nation, we are set apart from the world. And what the world says, you know, this is what we're going to do, suddenly that's not what we need to do anymore. Amen? So you're going to think to yourself, are, are you... Are you uh, looking at God's people and are you are you seeking to compete? Or are you someone who is acting in the in the order of David, who's willing to, to develop a companionship, a, a friendship, which goes us after something bigger. And then what what happens here when we start competing more and more and more, and we start we start taking God's holy commands for us. And these these are holy commands. That the idea you've got to go out and make disciples of all nations. And how I've only been in this up for three years. The number of times I've seen bickering and squabbling and fighting over Bible studies, over sharing, over who gets to interact with which person, <laughs> that happens a lot. So often we need to be the one leading the charge. But sometimes it's better to take a step back sometimes it's better not to be focused on another person. Because the risk of us focusing on another person in our relationship, looking at somebody face-on and, 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 and building a relationship which is based on somebody else and their ability, is that we risk missing out on God. And you may think to yourself, well, I'm not, I'm not exactly a competitive person. I'm not really into that thing." But maybe, maybe you do compete in a different way. Maybe you do lose sight of God, lose sight of God in your relationships in a different way. Perhaps your, your way is more centered on uh, oh, uh, maybe it's more centered on infatuation. If you, if you look at Saul here in verse 21, three times when he's pursuing David he sends men, he sends him again, they prophesy again they prophesy again they prophesy but but Saul is not able to take the hints. Saul's not able to figure out that God opposes him and God is protecting David. And the reason why is because Saul is so fixated and infatuated with David that he is missing what God is doing, God's work. And maybe if you're not competitive, maybe you infatuate on people, maybe you fixate on people in a different way, maybe you focus on people in a romantic way. Maybe you have someone you, you adore so much, you, you, you invest so much time in. Maybe it's your wife, your husband, maybe your boyfriend or girlfriend, that it, it draws you away from the mission. Or maybe it's in your friendships. Maybe the only commonality you have here with somebody is that you both like golf. All right? I don't have that commonality with anyone. But we've we, we got to think, guys. I mean, Are we someone who strives and looks for God in our relationships? Because we, we can't miss. We can't miss out on that. It, we, we, need, we need a relationship with each other that are not based on one another. And the, 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 the idea is, I mean, when we're facing one another, when we only focus on someone else, and maybe through competitiveness, and maybe through uh, infatuation, right, we are only looking at each other and we miss what's around us. We miss the larger goal. But the type of companionship that Jonathan demonstrates, which we're about to look at soon, hopefully if I haven't skipped it, is is one which is of companionship and friendship and love and one which is focused on a much greater thing. It's this idea that instead of facing one another in our relationships, we are shoulder to shoulder. We are aligned and unified facing something greater than ourselves. So let's look at the companionship of Jonathan and David, the, the flip side, right? So while Saul is jealous of David, while Saul is threatened by David, Jonathan is way different. He's someone who loves and honors David completely. And whilst Saul is selfishly ambitious, Jonathan is a sacrificial servant. I mean, think about, think about what it would have taken for, uh, for Jonathan to have aligned himself with David. I mean, who's in line for the throne? Who's the heir? It's Jonathan. And so, when Jonathan takes off his garment and says, "Hey, you know what? I'm aligned with you. I'm making a covenant with you." He's saying, "I'm willing to sacrifice my place as king of Israel. I'm willing to give it up." Or think about the fact that even the the uh, the ability to go against your father, who is king and who is going around killing people. I mean, that's bold. That, that's, that's conviction. He's willing to give up and sacrifice whatever it takes in order to be aligned with David. And this is this cool quote here from A.W. Tozer, which it says, True obedience is a refusal to compromise in any regard our relationship with God, regardless of the consequence. And the, re- the, reason, the reason I put this quote here. It's because when, when David, sorry, when Jonathan looks at David and his relationship with David, it's not fixated on David. Yes, it's a close, yes, it's an intimate relationship. But it's a relationship which is based on God. It's God is the focal point in every area of their relationship. And so Jonathan is unwilling to compromise because he knows that David is the anointed one. The one who will become king of Israel. And he knows that that comes from God. He willingly respects it. He willingly goes and he surrenders to it. And the only way that Jonathan is willing to surrender his kingdom to, kingdom to David is that he's willing to surrender himself to God. And we've got to think, we have that type of relationship where we surrender ourselves to God. And, and look at the bigger picture where it's not about ourselves. It's not what we gain. There's a big, there's a bigger plan that goes beyond us, and so, and that leads me to my second and final point here, where do we seek refuge in Rama? Now, when I say refuge in Rama, I'm not saying do we literally travel over to Rama? No, no all right. Rama is this idea of spiritual uh, guidance and of God. Where, where in your hard times or when you're struggling, where do you go and seek refuge? There's a lot of commentaries that, that talk about how confusing it is that David, as he's been pursued by, by Saul and his men, flees north to Ramah instead of south to his home. I mean, put yourself in David's position. You have this, you have this crazy madman who is ultimately extremely powerful pursuing you, and you run to the oldest guy you know. I mean, Samuel at this point is pretty old. If I was in David's position, being well-liked by Israel, being, being respected amongst the military ranks, the temptation for me would be to stir up some trouble. How about get some people alive with me? Maybe maybe start a revolution. But David is an extremely influential person. He has the ability to do that if he so pleases. But David doesn't. He flees and he leaves and goes back well, it goes to Rama. And there's, there's a quote by Gene Edwards which says, David did not split the kingdom when he made his departure. He did not take part of the population with him. He left alone, alone or alone. King Saul, number two, never does that. He always takes those who insist on coming along. That's what Edwards is touching on here is that, you know what? In, in, in David's mind, he does want to start a revolution, and we see this later on as well, because he knows that Saul, as well, is God's anointed. And by David acting against Saul, who does he become? He becomes Saul number two. And he's not willing to do it. He's not willing to stoop that low. And he leaves alone. It's a challenging calling. But he leaves alone, and he doesn't give in to what the world would have done. The world says, have a revolution. The world says, go, go. Go get armed up, ready for a war. But what does David do? He goes and he goes, he goes to Rama. Right, he goes to the most spiritual people he knows. He seeks out God. Alright? In David's, in David's heart, that's where he finds refuge, that's where he finds protection. And does God deliver? Absolutely. Three times, four times, technically, he delivers. Uh, he stops Saul dead in his tracks. David, uh, David, and this is, this, is, this is in line with David's character as well. Because if you remember David fighting, fighting Goliath, he, he says some pretty radical stuff. In, um, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26, uh, in reference to Goliath, he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that should defy the armies of the living God? And then later down in that chapter, he says... The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. That's David's attitude. He puts God first. He's always fixated on what God can do. And if we have that mentality, if we bring that mindset into our relationships in church, oh my goodness, there's no limit to what we can do. There are no boundaries of what God can do through us. We have, we have the potential. We just have to remember to stay fixed on what God can do. So the questions I have here, under pressure, when you're having a really hard time, where do you go and seek refuge? Are you someone who, who goes and, and uh, find, finds some kind of uh, uh, protection and uh, comfort in, I don't know, video games? People? Maybe it's work? Where do you go to find protection? And the second question I have here is would you, would you trust the world to provide that protection? Has it done it so far? Or is it time to, give, time to give God a shot? Time to go and find refuge in Rama. Because unless you are seeking out refuge in Rama, refuge in God, there is a, there's, gone, there's never going to be a dynamic of God in your relationships, relationships with people. It's always going to be competitive, it's always going to be uh, based on desire, based off what that person can do for you, or what you can do for that It's always going to be a, a sense of fixating on that person. And guys, we need to step back from that. We need to step back from it and we need to align ourselves shoulder to shoulder, unify, being companions. And the one unifying factor we have is that we follow a God who can do anything. Amen? So just to conclude, uh, the two points I have, you know, are you competitive or are you a companion? Do you compete against people or are you somebody's companion? And the, the, the final point I had there was uh, we have to find refuge in karma, Right? Nowhere else is going to provide the protection that you so desire. Nowhere else is going to be able to protect you from the sores of life. From all those hard times. And it's not just about going to Rama when it's hard as well. Yeah? It's, we've got to look at the heart behind it. Right? Rama, God, is David's knee-jerk reaction. And that only that, that only emerges in us, that only becomes our default through a life of seeking him out in all occasions. It's not just about when we're having a hard time, the soul is chasing us have a quick prayer and then we can uh, finish up with a song. Uh, Heavenly Father, yeah, I just want to thank you so much. Uh, We do have that example of competitiveness and uh, companionship in the Bible. And I pray we can emulate Jonathan and David where we do not seek out uh, selfishly what we desire, Lord. We are not jealous, we are not uh, fearful beings who, who, who seek to protect our own position, Lord, but we can be people who are aligned, unified, and uh, to seeking after your kingdom always, Lord. I pray as we, uh, as we, we go about into our week, Lord, uh, the words spoken here today from your, from, uh, from your scriptures uh, can resonate deeply into our hearts and change us from the inside out. I pray, Lord, that we can have a, a church uh, over the course of 2021, which is unified. A church which uh, is defined by companionship, where it's not about any individual besides you and your son, Jesus. I pray, Lord, as, uh, yeah, as, as I uh, wrap this up, Lord, that um, we can just really focus and reorientate onto you and uh, always be desiring to know your heart. I pray this in your precious name. Amen.